you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. While you're turning, I will just mention in passing, this message is actually a part of a book that I wrote and that the church is putting out um, down in Trustville. So I meant to have some copies with me. That did not happen. So if you want to, you can go to our church website, CalvaryChapelTrustville.com and get one. If not, that's, that's fine too. Just thought I'd mention it. John chapter 13. I'm going to read the first 20 verses, and then we'll look at that together. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You know this, of course. This is the last supper. This is the last night before the crucifixion, which will be the next day. On Sunday morning, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Palm Sunday, they'd waved the palm branches, they've shouted Hosanna, and welcomed him into the city. Monday, he went into the temple and he cleansed it. He flipped over the tables, he drove them out with a whip, and he said, my house shall be a house of prayer. The next day, Tuesday, all the Pharisees and Sadducees came to him and were trying to trap him in his words, and he debated with them all day and got the best of them. The next day, was when he gave the Olivet Discourse. Not one of these stones shall remain standing upon another. And then the next day was Thursday, which is where we have the Last Supper. Peter and John prepared the Passover. They would have gone to the temple and gotten the sacrifice of the lamb. They would have brought together the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the wine. And the other disciples would have come to the house that was prepared for them. And you gotta get this picture in your mind. You have all of these young men, and the disciples were young men, despite what those pictures of them with those big old Santa Claus beards look like. These are young, college-age frat boys, most likely, which explains why they fought with each other. Does that make a lot more sense? 
And they begin to, you can imagine, talk about how things are going. This is so great. People are finally listening to Jesus, and, and we're going to move on, and we put the Pharisees out, and we're going to get rid of Rome next, and then the kingdom's going to come, and I'm going to be right there next to Jesus, and you're not going to be next to Jesus. I'm going to be next to Jesus. I healed more people than you did, and you, you were ready to run away when the, the guards were coming after us, and they're fighting, and they're kicking off their sandals, and nobody washed anybody else's feet, which does not matter in our culture, but back then it really did. Because the roads were not paved, you would get dirty, even if you were clean, as Jesus said. So it was a part of the hospitality to wash the feet. The servants would do it, starting with the lowest servant, and then working your way to the top if there was not anybody else there. And if you didn't have any servants, well, that's what you'd have children for. And you'd start with your youngest child, and they would wash the feet, and if they weren't there, all the way to the top. And if you don't have children, well, that's what your wife is for. And so your wife would wash the feet. And if your wife wasn't, not as much laughter on that one, I noticed, but... <laughs> And if your wife couldn't do it, then you would do it because it was that important. Jesus mentioned to Simon in a previous chapter, you did not give me water for my feet, as in it was an insult not to do this. But for the disciples to wash each other's feet would to take themselves out of the running of their favorite argument, which is who's the greatest? Luke 22 says that they were arguing about that this night. But Jesus himself got down and washed their feet. The one person who very obviously was at the top, they were just arguing for spot number two. But number one gets down and begins to wash their feet. He showed us all what love is. And everybody thinks that they have their own definition of love. Have you noticed that? They think that you ought to be able to define it yourself and it's different for every person. And then they get on Instagram or TikTok or whatever and they say, in my 14 years of experience, this is what I have learned that love is. And don't try to tell me any different because I know. Hey, Christians don't believe that. God tells us what things mean, especially what important things mean. And love is what Jesus demonstrated here by washing the disciples' feet. And he told us that we are to wash one another's feet. We're to show this same kind of love. So in looking how Jesus did this, it's instructive for us to know how we are to love one another. And if you're taking notes, there are four things that Jesus knew in this passage and that leads to four different characteristics that should characterize our love as Christians. Number one, Jesus knew he was going to the cross. It says Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. His hour had come. The Roman cross was a torturous way to die. You know this, don't you? Hold out your arm, if you will. You've got those two bones in your arm that when I took my anatomy class in high school, I knew what they were called, but I don't now. You have two bones. If you run your finger up to where the wrist bone connects to the hand bone, there more technical terms, there is a little notch right there. You feel that? That's where they would drive the nail when they would crucify you on either side. And then they would put the bone either behind the tendon in your ankle or through the bones of the feet. And the way you died on a cross was through asphyxiation. You would suffocate because as you're hanging there, the rib cage would collapse on the lungs. So you had to push off the nail to take a breath and then collapse back. And men would die of exhaustion and then they would suffocate. Jesus himself would actually die of blood loss and trauma before that because of the severity of the beating that he got. And Jesus knew that this was coming up tomorrow. And don't think to yourself, well, Jesus was God. He wasn't afraid. Oh, yes, he was tells us that when he gets in the garden of Gethsemane, he would be sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Which means either he was sweating so much it looked like blood, or that he actually had some kind of reaction and was beginning to bleed instead of sweat. Either way, he was afraid. 
John 12, 27, he says, now my soul is troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I come to this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour, Jesus said. For this purpose. It was the eternal plan of the triune Godhead for Jesus Christ to die on the cross. The Bible says that Jesus was slain from before the foundations of the world. Now that should not take away in your mind the fact that this was an event that happened in time, around 30 AD. The point was it has always been the plan. So Jesus was afraid, but he's like, this is why I'm here. I can't turn away from it now. We also see in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus humbled himself. He had emptied himself to become a man. Why? Why would he die on the cross? I'll tell you why. Because God was not about to let Satan wreck the creation that he had made and get one over the sovereign Lord. Nobody defeats our Lord. And Satan said, now that I've caused them to sin, you've got to destroy your world because you're just. And God says, how about this? I will become the just and the justifier of all men at the cross. But that required Jesus Christ to die. So as I said, Philippians 2, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Did Jesus stop being God? No, that should be a much faster reaction, Christians. Did Jesus stop being God? No, thank you. All right, that was good. We need to know that one. Jesus did not stop being God. He took on humanity. He did not abandon divinity. He was emptied, but of what? Of his glory, of his privileges, of his power. Now, he was omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient and all the rest, but while he was on the earth, he did not access any of it. That is the ultimate humiliation that Jesus endured for your sake. He was born to die, and he knew that in the upper room. But despite all that, he knelt down to wash his disciples' feet. He didn't say, would you all just shut up? Don't you know what I'm about to do in like less than a few hours here? He got down and he washed their feet. This is sacrificial love. Jesus Christ was prepared to sacrifice his own body on that cross. And if he's willing to do that, then surely he's willing to sacrifice a little dignity to wash his disciples' feet. This is the kind of love that we are to show to one another. If you do not sacrifice, you don't really love. Love that gives up nothing is not real love. If you're unwilling to give up anything to change for the person you love or to do something for the person you love, you don't really love them. This is important because we sometimes get this idea that love is about two people coming together who should never let the other person change them and never do anything for them. And they've got a, it's this really bizarre thing that we have, isn't it? Love is about sacrifice, about giving up things to love the person that is in front of you. And a Christian has been given the greatest example of this in Christ Jesus. First John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Oh, it's so easy to be pious about love, isn't it? Word and talk. Talk about how much we love people. We sing about how much we love people and we love the Lord. And the two greatest commandments, love the Lord and love people. We even get online and we weirdly get angry about not enough people are loving people. <laughs> isn't that funny how we do that? But then when the moment comes, if you're not willing to make the sacrifice and do what needs to be done, James, uh, John says, how do you know God? How can you claim to know God if you're not willing to do that, to sacrifice? 
Sacrifice what? How about time? Jesus had 24 hours left to live, and he used one of them to wash his disciples' feet. Consider that. How special is your time in light of all that? Sometimes we're really protective of our time, aren't we? Hey, do you think you could come help me? Ugh, how long is it going to take? And you got nothing else going on. You just don't want to be busy all day. Sometimes even our kids, some parents will get really resentful of the time that their kids take from them. Share your time with people. Be willing to spend that hour. Sacrifice effort, right? We're willing to do anything. I love you so much, man. Hey, can you help me move? Oh, what day is it? Oh, Saturday. Oh, I can't do Saturday. I have a fever that day. I, I, can't, I can't come out and do that. Or when you got to bring somebody gas on the highway or they need you to babysit for them at a moment's notice. Jesus Christ is the one that spoke the world into existence and he was willing to get down and do slave labor for his disciples. So don't be afraid to sacrifice effort or resources. Some of us, that's where we draw the line. I'll do anything for you, but don't you mention my money. That's just inappropriate for you to ask that question of me, to, that you need something from me. This is a capitalist society and I made this money and this belongs to me. John said, if you have the world's goods and you see your brothers in need and you don't give it to them, how can you claim that you have God's love abiding in you? Money or food. How about food? I don't have a lot of money. Yeah, but you got food. You got so much food, you don't know what to do with it. You throw away food. You open up a pantry full of food and you stare at it and you say, why is there never any food in this house? The waiter says, do you want to take some of this food home? No, I got plenty at the house. Throw it away. There are people who need food. What about clothes? How much time did you spend picking out what you were going to wear this morning? A couple husbands just elbowed a couple wives just now. It's great. I don't have any of that. What about skills? In the book of Acts chapter 9, Tabitha used to sew clothes for the widows. She just made clothes. And when she died, the church was so distraught that God raised her from the dead. He didn't give Peter, Paul, John, any people that. But he gave Tabitha that. Because when you sacrifice something for somebody else, they know you love them. Which is why Jesus showed a sacrificial love because he knew he was going to the cross. Number two, Jesus knew that he loved his disciples. He says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Each one of these disciples, according to Luke chapter six, had been chosen after a night-long vigil of prayer. Now, Jesus had lots of followers, but he only had 12, as we call them, disciples or apostles. And Mark tells us that they were chosen, first of all, to be with him. That was the first thing he wanted from his disciples. To be with him. To be his best friends. To spend every day for three years together. You ever have a relationship with somebody like that? Imagine, Jesus knew every one of these guys intimately. He knew their secrets. They had all kinds of inside jokes that didn't make sense to anybody. He had had intimate conversations with each one. They had been through danger together. They had been through prosperity together. You ever, maybe you went to high school and you enjoyed your high school time. I sure did. And you try to tell people about what was so great about it. And you, you can't really, can you? Because there wasn't any big thing that happened. Or you say, what was so great about that person? You can't even name anything. It's like, I don't know, the, the things that don't make sense to anybody else, but they're meaningful to me. That's what Jesus had with each of these people. In John 15, he says, you are my friends. And so he washed their feet. He got on his hands and knees to show them he was the top of this pyramid. And they all knew it. He says, I'm your teacher and Lord. That's the right thing to call me. But he got down and wanted to show them one more time that he loved them and he was willing to serve them. That's the love of Jesus. This is what we call sincere love. This is the kind of love Jesus had for the 12. 
Romans 12, verses 9 and 10 says, Let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let love be genuine. That word in Greek is anupakritos. You can kind of hear it in there. An is a negation. And then upakritos. Kind of sounds like hypocrite. Literally, let love be without hypocrisy. What does that mean? Don't fake love in God's church. Don't fake it. Actually have, it says, brotherly affection for one another. Sincerely love each other. Now listen, sometimes we say things like, well, as long as I do loving things, it doesn't matter what I feel. Right? Wrong. Jesus Christ requires not just right actions of you, but right motivations. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, yeah, you don't kill anybody, but you've got hate in your heart, and it's the same thing. He requires of you to actually love the people that are around you, to actually love with affection your neighbor as yourself. This is unique among world ideology and world teaching and world religion. There's all kinds of people that love people, right? We love people. We love humanity. We love the world, But you meet these people, and they march in the streets, and they campaign for their thing, and they wave signs around, and they have parties and rallies, and they write books, and they're all about loving humanity and saving this and saving that and helping these people, and you meet them, and they're some of the most angry, bitter people you've ever met in your life. It was a whole on a minute. I thought you loved humanity. I thought you loved people. I thought you were here to save people. Why are you so aggressive to all the people that you meet? Because they love humanity in an abstract way. They love Humanity. They love people. They love the world. They don't love the persons that make up the people. And they get angry because they think they know what's best for people. Then when they meet the actual people, they maybe don't want any of that. They think you're just too stupid to know what's good for you. And actual people become a hindrance to you helping people. So then you are now justified in treating people poorly because you don't really love them. You don't love her or him or him or her. You love everybody. Therefore, you're justified in treating people however you like in order to do what's best for all those sheep out there. Jesus thinks of us as sheep too, doesn't he? But it's different. He says, I'm a good shepherd who leaves the 99 to track down the one. Jesus loves the individual. And that makes an amazing difference. Look at Peter. (laughs) Peter was the one guy, of course, who didn't want Jesus to wash his feet. I know you ain't washing my feet, Jesus. Yes, I am, Peter. So, well, they, they might let you do that, but I'm not going to let them get away with it. He goes, Peter, <laughs> I need to wash your feet or you have no part with me. Okay, well then let's take a bath then, Lord, if we're going to do this. Jesus took the time with Peter, not with the others. Why? Because Peter was the only one who needed it. He loved the 12, not just as the 12, but as 12 individual people. And that's how we're supposed to love each other. True, sincere Love for each man and woman as individuals. The KJV calls it this, bowels of mercy. It's kind of gross when you think about it, isn't it? And we, 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 we talk about the heart. That's where our love lives, right? Valentine's Day, it's hearts everywhere, not bowels everywhere. <laughs> but there's a very vivid picture here. Because it's love on a gut level. It's deep down inside. It's not frivolous. It's not... Moment by moment, it's deep inside of you. That's what the Bible requires of you for people, for those that are around you. And some people are harder to love than others. 
Isn't that the truth? People are obnoxious. They're hard to love. People are shy. They're hard to love. People who are outgoing and fun and crazy all the time, it's hard to think of them as an actual person and love them properly. But you've got to be the one who is willing to put in the time to love that person as an individual. And when the facade slips a little bit, you're the one that stays and doesn't require them to get back to the way they were before, and they'll love you for it. That's what Jesus did with people, wasn't it? He stuck it out until they were actually having real conversations and loving them right. And you know what? God loves everybody, doesn't he? Which means God knows what is lovable about every person. So God can teach you that. He can teach you what's lovable about the person you have a hard time loving. God saw Peter, and he knew that Peter was a loudmouth and a braggart and obnoxious, but he saw that all of that could be redeemed for the glory of the Lord. He says, if I take this guy and all his most frustrating tendencies and I redeem them by the Holy Spirit, he'll become an apostle that the world can't stop. The church needs people like that. And so Jesus spent three long years dragging that out of Peter patiently. And that's what God wants you to do for each one of the people around you. He'll show you what's lovable about them and then you, through patience and love and grace, get to watch the Lord draw that out of them. We call that believing in somebody, right? Sincerely loving one another. And Peter himself in 1 Peter 1.22 says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Jesus knew he loved his disciples, and so he demonstrated sincere love. Number three, Jesus knew he was going to be betrayed. The devil had already put it in Judas's heart to betray him. Judas only valued Christ for what Christ could profit him. And he sold Jesus out. The night that Mary broke the alabaster flask and anointed Jesus, he got angry. Why wasn't this sold and the money given to the poor? Oh, isn't he spiritual? And Jesus said, would you leave her alone? He says, you're always going to have the poor, Judas. Allow her to have this moment. And Judas, in that moment, realized he's serious about all this not of this world stuff. He means it. And at that moment, Judas had had enough, and he went the next day, and he offered Jesus up to the Pharisees for a couple bucks. He only cared about Jesus for what he could gain from him. And this is what fulfilled that psalm that Jesus quotes. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Zechariah chapter 11 has another long prophecy of the betrayal of the Messiah. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him. He knew that there were soldiers standing by. He knew that he had been paid. He knew that it was going to be a kiss that betrayed him. And he still got down and washed Judas' feet. He didn't snub him. He didn't do a worse job with him. He didn't call him out in front of everybody. He loved him just like he loved everybody else. Think on that for a minute. If you know somebody was betraying you over to your enemies to die, would you be able to do that? This is exactly the kind of love that Judas could not understand because Judas only knew love that profited him something. Jesus demonstrated selfless love. The kind of love where self doesn't factor into the equation. Love that doesn't care about its own interests. Y'all do not love people only for what you can get out of it. That's not love. That's slavery. If our relationship is only based on what I can get from you, that's not real love. 
Maybe you've been in a relationship with somebody and you're trying to be obedient to the Lord and they want to take the relationship to a sexual place, but you're trying to be pure before God and then you say no and then they're gone the next day. They didn't really love you. They wanted something from you. Like those folks that come to your door and they want to ask if you want to upgrade your wireless you know, equipment. They're all very nice. Wow, that's a good looking dog. What kind of dog is that? What's his name? How many kids do you have? Have you been mowing your lawn? I can tell you got a great, great green lawn going on here and you're having a great conversation. But the minute you say, no, thank you. I'm happy with the service I have. They're gone. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought we were having a connection here. No, you want, they wanted something from you. That's not real love. Let me just tell you, when you love people, you are going to be betrayed. Can I just liberate you from that right now? Don't worry about it. It's going to happen. People are going to betray you. Folks are going to spread rumors and lies about you. And you're going to have other friends who should know better that are going to believe those lies and rumors without even so much as calling you and asking. You're going to help somebody, maybe even financially, give them money to make their rent or something like that. And they're going to squander it right in front of your face. And you're going to watch all that help and all the sacrifice that you made go to waste. You're going to do everything right for people. And they're going to throw it in your face. You're going to take their late night phone calls. You're going to listen to them complain and weep and cry. You're going to give them hugs. You're going to text them, hey, buddy, it's going to be okay. You're going to take them out so that they don't have to worry about the situation they're in. You're going to help them financially. You're going to give them a ride. You're going to do all that stuff. And then one day they're going to come to your face and say, you never cared about me. That's going to happen. It's happened to me. It's probably happened to you too, hasn't it? Happened to David in Absalom's rebellion. Absalom was David's son. Absalom rebelled against his father and tried to take his throne. And there was a man named Ahithophel who helped him. Ahithophel was David's counselor, his most trusted advisor. He also was Bathsheba's grandfather. And he worked with Absalom to help him steal the throne from under his father and Ahithophel's friend. And David wrote Psalm 55 talking about this, of how much it hurt to have that happen. He said, it's not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it's you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. In God's house, we walked in the throng. David says, if it was some Philistine, I wouldn't care. That's what Philistines do. They hate me. They want to take my throne. They want to get rid of me. That's fine. I'm prepared to deal with that. But you're my friend. You're my buddy. We, we were together. Jesus and Judas, we spent three years together, every minute of every day, laughing together, crying together, serving together. And you're stabbing me in the back. I've had this happen to me. I've had people go around behind my back and start telling other people that they need to leave me, out, leave me alone and I'm no good for them. And I've had people try to steal ministries out from under me and all kinds of stuff. And I, I'm not like David. I don't weep over my harp when things like that happen. I get angry. Anybody else? You get angry. All you want to do in that moment is say, then forget it. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. What do you think, what do you, think you are coming and sitting here with us, Judas? Get out. I know what's going on with you, and if none of this was real, then fine. I don't feel obligated to live up to the love I had for you before. Get out. But that's not what Jesus did. He washed his feet. He got down on his knees and washed his betrayer's feet as he was smiling at him and saying, Lord, I love you so much, and Jesus knew what was going on. That's the kind of love that we're required to have, selfless love, love that is not concerned about how it's going to affect me. 
He's called us to be the example of love. Denying yourself to love even the guy that's going to come in and get a posse of people around him and split the church in two. Even to love the woman that's going to come in and ask for counseling and then accuse the church falsely of sexual harassment. To love her. He even tells us to love the person who's going to minister and serve with you for a long time and then leave and go publish an article somewhere about how inept your ministry is. Why? Why would the Lord tell us to love them? Because who knows if your act of love might not be the very thing that is going to change that person's heart. You don't know. You showing love and forgiveness to that person could be just what God needs to turn it all around. You say, that would never happen. It's not going to change. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says that love hopes all things. Love believes all things. It believes that the prodigal can come home. Love believes that your relationship with your parents can be repaired. Love believes that the person that ripped you off and stole from you might call you one day weeping over the phone saying, how could you ever forgive me for what I've done? Even when everybody else has given up, we believe in redemption and we believe in forgiveness and we believe in restoration. And yes, you will get burned along the way. If I expose myself to that, I'm gonna get hurt, yeah. But God has called the Christian church to be the ones who are committed to loving even when we do get hurt. Someone's gotta be the first one to do it and Jesus said it's gonna be you. Because that's the kind of love that Jesus showed us, right? Selfless love. He knew he was going to be betrayed and yet he showed selfless love to his disciples. Fourth and finally, Jesus knew he had all authority, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Matthew 26, Jesus is gonna tell Peter, don't you think I could call down 12 legions of angels to come and fight for me? They're probably thinking, you had that this whole time and you're just now telling us about this? John 10, 18, and what I think is the most manly thing Jesus ever said, he said, nobody takes my life from me, I lay it down, and I have authority to pick it back up again if I want to. All authority was in his hands. Nothing that happened that night was outside of the control of Jesus Christ. He did not have to go through any of it. He did not have to weep in the garden. He did not have to endure Judas's betraying kiss. He didn't have to go through those kangaroo courts, or the floggings, or the crucifixion, or any of that. He could have stopped at any moment but he didn't. That was his decision as Lord. He told his father in Luke twenty two forty two, 42, not my will, but yours be done. The act of submission in that moment was the final confirmation of the cross, the end of the plan of eternity that had been from the very beginning. Jesus was under no obligation to go to the cross, but he did. Philippians 2 says, not only did he not regard being equal with God, something to be grasped and held onto, not only did he empty himself, but he was humiliated to the point of death, even death on a cross. But it also says that because he did that, he has now been exalted to the highest place, and someday he'll be exalted even farther in his kingdom when he delivers it over to his father. Jesus used his authority, his rights, to demonstrate submissive love. What does that mean? It means he deferred his rights to meet someone else's need. If there was anybody in that room that had the right to sit down and not wash anybody else's feet, it was Jesus. And yet he said, I'm not going to exercise that right. In fact, I'm gonna defer and get low and submit myself. Your love must be submissive. Say, submissive to who? Well, submissive to Christ for one. This is an important thing for us to learn. Jesus Christ has already told you to love people. 
Therefore, you don't have to wonder. Isn't that nice? Jesus Christ said, love your neighbor as yourself, and he outranks you. Therefore, you don't have to wonder. You are doing it in submission to Christ. Don't we, aren't we guilty of doing this as Christians? We say things that are very clear in Scripture, and we go, well, I'm really working through that right now. I'm just praying it through. God's going to get me there. No, no, you don't have to pray through commandments. You obey commandments. Oh, that's hard, Lord. I don't know if I can do it. Because I didn't ask you if you could do it or not. I said, do it. I'm trying to love them, but you know, it's hard. God's helping me. God already told you, love your neighbor as yourself. Not only that, but you know, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That does not sound very American. Because we are big on rights in this country, aren't we? This happened all three services. I just lost some of y'all. I saw it in your eyes. Hey, stay with me, okay? We are very big on rights, aren't we? Inalienable rights from the creator. They can't take this right from us. We've got a bill of rights, and we are talking about rights and what I deserve and what I'm owed and what is right, and you can't take that away from me because I have the right to do that. (laughs) Jesus Christ had all authority. He had every right, and he chose to exercise that right by getting down on his knees and washing somebody's feet. He said, I will not exercise my rights out of love. Consider that. That's how we do it in the church. We're not worried about our rights. We're worried about love. We're worried about taking care of somebody else and trusting that God's gonna take care of us. The pyramid is inverted in here. The last shall be first. So we don't elbow our way to the front of the line. It's nothing for us to see the millionaire scrubbing toilets and the janitor preaching. Because that's not how we do things in here. We don't regard ourselves according to the flesh. We let the Lord's love guide that. There's no excuse. Well, if I show this kind of love to people, then they're going to walk all over me. Yeah, maybe. But, it, but they're trying to abuse me. They're trying to walk all over me. Yeah, I know. 1 Corinthians 6, they were having a problem with this. They were suing each other in the church. They were a litigious people, as we are. And Paul writes to them and says, are you out of your mind? He says, are you so carnal that you can't work out your own disputes in the church? You gotta go and air the church's dirty laundry in front of all these people that we're trying to save? He said, would it not be better for you to be defrauded So would it not be better to have somebody trample on your rights than for a bad testimony to be attached to the church of Jesus? Would it not be better for you to lose out on something you are owed and that you deserve so that people will not say things like, Christians talk about love all the time, but then the second it starts pinching them, they don't care anymore. Would it not be better to be defrauded, the Bible says? Submissive love. Ephesians 5.21 says we are to be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this does not eliminate hierarchy or structure in the church or in the nation or in the family. The Holy Trinity is a harmonious hierarchy held together by submissive love. But that's not the lesson today. The lesson for today is how you operate within the broken and corrupt hierarchy and structure on earth. And that is through love. 
Paul told us in Romans 12 to outdo one another in showing honor. So if you're going to compete, compete to see who can show the most honor to other people. If we do that, then you won't need to step in and assert your rights. If the husband starts loving his wife and the wife starts reverencing her husband, neither one of them has to get all defensive against the other one. If in the church the pastor is showing servant leadership and the church is submitting to him as their shepherd in Christ, you're not going to have to step in and fix issues. Apply that to any domain you like. This is how the Lord told us to do it. He says, you end the cycle. You get off the merry-go-round. You be the one to show love and expose yourself to getting hurt so that you can bring an end to this cycle that goes on. He hurt me, but it was a little more than I hurt him. Therefore, I'm justified in hurting him a little more. Jesus says, would you just knock it off? You be the ones to love. Jesus knew he had all authority, and yet he showed submissive love by washing their feet. So let's recap. Number one, he knew he was going to the cross. Number two, he knew that he loved his disciples. Number three, he knew he was going to be betrayed. And number four, he knew that he had all authority. And then he showed us sacrificial, sincere, selfless, submissive love by washing his disciples' feet. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's what John said. He says, if you don't love, you don't know God. I don't care what your doctrine is. I don't care how you voted. I don't care where you go to church. If you don't love, you don't know God, because God is love. I know this is a difficult example to follow. But when you consider that you were one of those difficult people, you're not Jesus in this story. You're Peter. You're Judas. And Jesus came and loved you anyway. And Jesus said that whoever is forgiven much loves much. So if you don't feel like you have an obligation to love people, maybe you don't understand how much you've been saved from. You could not save yourself. And if you're not a Christian in here, you cannot save yourself. You do not want to roll the dice and stand before God and see if you can work something out. You are wicked. Wickedness comes from within you. It's not external. But Jesus loves you so much. And once you understand that, you will never again dare to exalt yourself over somebody else and withhold love from them. And if you've been doing that, you need to get back to Jesus and let him show you what love looks like. And here's another thing I'll add at the end. Everybody wants to change the world, right? Everybody's got a cause. Everybody's marching for this or that. Everybody's online for this or that. Everybody's got the thing that they're excited about. And this is how we're going to do it. Jesus did all that. Jesus changed everything, didn't he? We're never going to be the same. But he didn't do it with an army. He didn't do it with a movement. He didn't do it with an idea or a sword. He did it with love. And he said, this is how you're going to be my disciples. You go out and you do the same thing. And the world thinks that they've got to go out and make all this happen. But the Jesus knew, you can change anything you want up here. But if the hearts of people don't change, it doesn't matter what you've got up here. So Jesus has sent us out to be the ones loving people and showing them this is what God's love looks like. It'll transform your family. It'll transform your workplace and your neighborhood and your church and your country. If you will love like this, the way that he loved, through one grand gesture of washing their feet, Jesus showed us what real love looks like. And you must purpose in your heart today, this is how you're going to love 
those who are around you. Amen? Worship team, why don't you all come on up and, and let's close here in prayer. Our holy God, we thank you for the example of your son, Jesus Christ. And I thank you also for the presence of your Holy Spirit because I cannot love people this way. But Lord, you, you, you teach us, you show us. You're merciful and gracious to us. You take the time to be an individual attendant with us like you did with Peter. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, God, that you would show us how to love those that need love around us.